you've been with us for the last couple of months, you'll know that we're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. And you'll also be aware that over the last several weeks, the messages have been pretty content-heavy in terms of describing or trying to explain circumstances or situations happening in the Corinthian church at that time. And as I've reflected on that, I, I've wondered, man, is it, is it too much content? Is it, is it too difficult? Is it, is it boring? Uh, and maybe not is it boring. Is it not edifying people and building them up? But I was reminded the reason that I preach and that, the, that we preach as a team the way that we do on Sundays and on Wednesdays, as I was watching a sermon clip this week from a man who was talking about Pentecost, and he, he said this, he said that if you thought that Pentecost was just about the filling of the believers with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you missed something. And he said, actually, it was the room that was filled first, and that what God wants to do is anoint places. And then he went from there to make the application that what they needed to do was build a bigger building so that they could have more of God's anointing in that building and not in the people, which is completely wrong. In fact, it's just about the opposite of what that passage is about because that passage is about how God's presence used to dwell in a building, in the temple in Jerusalem, but because they had neglected God and rejected him and turned from him, his presence left the building and was now dwelling in people. And so buildings are not the housing of God's presence. They can be tools for people like us to meet in, and we're grateful for that. But God does not anoint buildings. He anoints people. He anoints his church with the Holy Spirit and fills his church. And I was reminded why it's so important then for us to understand the context of the scripture and why it says what it says. Why were these issues being addressed, and why does it teach us what we teach? And so as we continue through 1 Corinthians, there are moments where it's content heavy and background issues have to be explained, but the reason we teach and then preach from that is so that we keep ourselves anchored to what God says and not our own dreams and fascinations. We want to know what God wants us to do and not what I want to do with a little spiritual language placed on it. Amen? And so today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're in the second half of that chapter, verses 17 to 34. How many of you have ever received the advice, maybe you got this advice from your mom at some point, and she said to you, think before you speak. Anybody ever had that advice from your mom? Or maybe your mom generalized it a little bit, and she said something like, always think before you act. Have you received that advice? Always think before you act. How many of you uh, still have trouble following that old, old advice, that old saying? It's a little bit like the, the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And speaking of ounces and pounds, how many of you have ever tried to apply this advice to your diet? Think before you eat. I always think before I eat, wow, that looks really good. I think I'll have one or two of those, right? I always think before I eat. I'm talking about thinking before you eat today because 
We're in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is a passage that deals with a meal that the church was eating together, the Lord's Supper. And they actually ate it in the context of an entire meal. Uh, so they took communion, like we would think of it, but in the context of eating a whole meal together. And at the heart of what Paul tells them about the Lord's Supper, we find this one command. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, let a person examine himself or think, then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. That sounds like really solid advice, really sound advice. If you're gonna participate in something as significant and meaningful as the Lord's Supper, remembering through the bread and the cup that Jesus gave his body and that he gave his blood for you, self-examination would seem appropriate. But why exactly, or for what, are you examining yourself? What are you supposed to be thinking about? Are you just looking for sin generally? Are you just trying to recount if you've done anything wrong in the past week? And if you have, what are you supposed to do about it in the context of communion? While general reflection and self-examination may be appropriate when taking communion, and that may be something that you're used to doing, maybe you've even been instructed to do that when taking communion, maybe someone has even read this verse and then said, now we all need to examine ourselves to see if there is any sin in us or something like that. It turns out that this is not what Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about a general self-examination. Instead, he was once again addressing a problem that was taking place among the believers in the Corinthian church. So I'm going to read to you about that problem from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22, where he says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So there was a division that was taking place between the haves and the have-nots in the community of the church of Corinth, between the rich and the poor, between the upper and the lower classes. Because there weren't yet dedicated church buildings, like the one that we're sitting in right now, they would have met in people's homes. And likely the homes that they met in were the homes of rich people because they would have had the space to accommodate more people in their larger homes. And those larger homes would have had a couple of spaces that were appropriate for hosting large gatherings, or at least larger gatherings, like the church meeting and having a meal together. They may have met in a Roman-style villa, which was pretty common for the wealthy at this period in Corinth. In fact, I've got a picture of what a Roman villa might have looked like, how it would have been arranged. And the traditional place for eating took place in a little spot. You can kind of see it there on the edge, and it's called, it's the funny name, 
triclinium, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But you see there how this might have been laid out where there was an atrium, a larger outdoor space, a garden, and then there were several other rooms along the outside of this larger house. The triclinium, though, it was a room with couches or cushions around three sides of a table so that guests could recline and they could all reach the center. And so you see a picture of that here. In fact, this is likely the kind of setup that took place when Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples, with the apostles. They would have been in a room probably like this. They would have housed 10 to 12 people, and they would have been around a table, and they would have fellowshiped around a common meal there. And this was a smaller space. It was uh, smaller relative to the more open spaces of the Roman villa. And as you can see in that illustration, it could probably accommodate about nine people. At the atrium that we showed you just a moment ago, however, could, without any furniture or anything like that, accommodate 30 to 40 people. And while we don't know exactly what was happening when the church got together to eat these meals, it's plausible that the haves or the wealthy were dining together in the triclinium and were eating a meal that matched their much richer tastes while the have-nots or the working class or the slaves, of which there were many in the Roman Empire at this time, were eating a much, much simpler meal standing in the atrium. And in some Roman villas, the kitchen was not directly attached to the triclinium, and so the food that the rich were about to eat would actually have to be marched through the atrium first so everybody would see what the rich were about to eat in the triclinium. And so the food for the rich would have been carried through the poor rabble out in the atrium, further emphasizing the division that existed between them. The Lord's Supper was then incorporated for them into this meal. And apparently someone had written to Paul and told him what was going on, complaining that this faction was developing in the church between those who had and those who did not have. And while we can't be certain that this is the exact situation that was taking place, what the Bible tells us about this distinction, this division, this faction, fits with what we know archaeologically of Corinth at the time from this period and the clues that the Bible gives us, they match together. But whatever the specific details, some were eating, Paul tells us, to the point of feeling full, or he says were drunk even, while others were left hungry, and it was causing humiliation and division for those who did not have what the rich had. And yet, they had the audacity to call this meal the Lord's Supper. Now, I imagine that we can easily see the problem with what was going on in these church meetings, and we can easily be appalled by it. We may, in fact, wonder how they could ever do such a thing. Paul himself was appalled by this practice. He said, I will not commend you. I will not praise you in this. He said even, this is not even the Lord's Supper that you are eating. However, the rich, especially the host of the meal, probably provided that meal, and so they felt the right to have their own meal, either to eat before the working class could even arrive or to devour without regard for those in the community that could not afford such extravagance because after all, they were the ones paying for it. When we take the Lord's Supper, we don't have a full meal, typically. Typically, we take it together with just the elements represented, the bread and the cup. Usually, we do it on a Sunday morning. Neither do we serve the rich before the poor. Everyone gets the same ingredients, the same elements, the same stuff. 
And at our picnic this afternoon, we don't have a special tent set up for the elite where they will be served prime beef burgers and specialty sausages while the rest of us eat ballpark hot dogs. That's not what we've got going on. But Paul's instructions to correct the sin and the division of this circumstance and his command for people to examine themselves before taking the Lord's Supper, they still provide conviction and they still provide instruction for the church. And what they teach us is this, you should examine yourself in light of the body. You should examine yourself in light of the body. Here's why. As with anything that we do on a regular basis, the Lord's Supper can become rote and its purpose can become distorted if we don't remember its true significance. The Lord's Supper can become a religious practice that we use to kind of prop up our view of ourselves like we can do with anything like worship or giving or anything else that's not done from the heart. We can divorce the good practice, even a practice that Jesus instructed us to participate in, we can divorce divorce the good practice from the meaning of that practice, and then we can use the practice as a cover-up for a heart that's no longer connected to the meaning of that practice. If your car develops a rusty spot on it, and you have it repainted, does that fix the problem? No, the rust is just now covered with paint. If you have a spot on the ceiling that indicates water has gotten in, and you repaint the ceiling but don't fix the leak in the roof, have you solved the problem that's going on? No, but people are so susceptible to doing this very thing spiritually. Your heart could be in a state of spiritual decay. Your relationship with the Lord may be in shambles. You may not be bearing any real spiritual fruit from your Christian life. Your growth could be completely stalled so that you're no longer becoming more like Jesus. Your love for others may have evaporated, but you came to church. You sang the songs, you gave in the offering, you took communion, you did the religious thing, and you've put a layer of paint on top of the problem. Perhaps whenever the stain begins to show again, the rust begins to peek through, you apply another layer of paint. But we all know that eventually what happens with a rust spot is a hole develops. Eventually what happens with a leaky roof is there is a hole in the ceiling and you can't paint over holes, can you? In Corinth, divisions existed in the church and they were being covered with the Lord's Supper. Verse 19 said that factions must exist in the Corinthian church so that the genuine might be recognized among them. And there are two ways to think about this. Paul may have meant that it was inevitable that factions developed in this situation and that it was revealing who the real believers or who the genuine among them were. The other possibility is that Paul was ironically parroting what the rich were saying. They were poo-pooing the complaints by suggesting that the differences between classes of people were so stark that factions were inevitably going to exist, and they were just unfortunate inevitabilities in the church, but they were still the church, and so they were still taking the Lord's Supper. But Paul calls their bluff. Whatever they were doing, he says, it was not the Lord's Supper, How could something that celebrates the body of Christ bring division to the body of Christ? Their manner of worship did not match the one they claimed to be worshiping through the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper had become a pretense 
for their own pride. It's possible that you come from a religious background marked by repeated traditions that you learned as you grew up, and they were, they were kind of pounded into you as you got older. You may not even understand what some of those traditions are or why you do them, but you were led to believe that if you simply keep the tradition without asking many questions, that makes you right with God and that he will accept you because you kept that. Perhaps you don't even know the significance of that tradition. Maybe the practice hasn't changed you. Your life hasn't been remade or shaped into any difference. No significant difference has been made in your life by keeping that tradition, but you kept doing it because it covered the rust and the water spots of your life with a religious veneer. It's not that regular practices. It's not that traditions are wrong. In fact, the scripture gives us some. Paul does not tell them to stop taking the Lord's Supper in this passage. He tells them to start doing it correctly by examining their own lives first and remembering the true significance of what they were doing. Maybe you grew up in church and you feel comfortable with it and and it has provided a sort of covering in your life, but the gospel of Jesus has not really penetrated your heart. You live as you otherwise would, except you go to church once in a while. Your spending habits, your devotional habits, your speech, your relationships, your sex life, your work life, your thought life, they're all the same as they would have been otherwise. None of them say, I've met Jesus and he transformed me. None of them sing the song we sang this morning, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He, pl- he loved me before I even knew him, and he plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Your life doesn't say that. Your life says, I've got a veneer of religiosity pasted, slapped on the outside of my life, but nothing is transformed. Nothing has changed. After a genuine start in your life of real faith, perhaps you use a few Bible verses as a cover for a life that in many regards doesn't honor Jesus to whom those verses point. And you use a worship service in place of change. You have that farmhouse chic sign in the entrance of your home that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But your house isn't serving the Lord. And you aren't serving the Lord in any, in any distinguishable way. You quote, or you rather misquote, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, as if it is a self-help mantra to help you do what you want to do, rather than to enable you to do what Christ wants you to do. Our human hearts are so susceptible to this kind of hypocrisy. God spoke to his people Israel through the prophet Amos, and he said this. I hate, I despise your feasts. I I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is it possible that religious practices have become a cover for other things that don't conform to the God you claim to honor. Examine yourself. Pull off the cheap bumper sticker verses. Pull off the signs you placed in your entryway, metaphorically at least. 
pull off the stuff that you have used to say, I'm right with the Lord except for your faith in Jesus and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life and allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart to shine the light of God's word and his truth on what lies beneath the surface. Having judged or having informed rather the Corinthian believers that what they thought was the Lord's Supper was not actually the Lord's Supper, Paul proceeded to remind them the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. Verses 23 to 26 are probably the most commonly or most frequently read verses prior to taking communion. And there Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's worth pausing for a moment here to consider what we're reading Paul is claiming that these are the words that the Lord spoke on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas when he ate the Passover with the 12 apostles and announced to them a new covenant that he was beginning through his blood, a new way to have relationship with God that would surpass and supersede the old one. That makes this very, very old. What we're reading here is a tradition that is very old in the church, coming from the lips of Jesus, orally transmitted from from church to church and from the apostles to the churches. This letter is likely, 1 Corinthians, is, is, is older than the gospels that we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul is not necessarily here claiming that he heard this straight from Jesus' lips. He probably heard it from the apostles, but he received it as from the Lord because he knew they were telling him the words of Jesus himself. It's It's very similar, Paul's words are very similar to how Luke records the words Jesus spoke at that Last Supper in his gospel. And while there are slight differences between the exact wording of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians, it is remarkable how similar the tradition passed on to us is of what Christ said, and it is an indication of its historicity and of its trustworthiness. But not only is it remarkable how trustworthy these words are, Paul here is highlighting how different Jesus' own attitude was from those believers in Corinth who claimed to be following his directions in taking the Lord's Supper. He says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, one of his followers and one of his confidants, Judas, sold him out, and on that night he broke bread and reminded reminded them that he was giving his body for them. And there's a stark contrast between the actions of the rich in eating their fancy feast in the triclinium and separating themselves from the rest of the church and how they were causing division between the haves and the have-nots and Jesus' own actions in which he broke the bread and shared it among them even with the one who would betray him, and by this symbol indicated that he would give himself up for them. If you're unfamiliar with the Lord's Supper, what we're talking about this morning with communion, Jesus instituted it during the Passover meal, and during that meal, the Jews would remember when God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. They ate bitter herbs, remembering the bitterness of their toil and their slavery in Egypt, 
They ate the Passover lamb, remembering how the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts and the lintels of their ancestors' homes so that the death angel would pass over. They gave thanks throughout the course of the meal over shared cups of wine that they would read the Psalms over and remember how God had delivered them. And what's interesting about the Passover meal is that it was not just a memorial meal as we might think of it. As we might think of a picnic or, or that we sell, through which we celebrate uh, our liberty or Independence Day. This was eaten as a reminder to those who participated in the meal that they were also participants in the deliverance. In fact, you might even call it a, a meal of, of, um, of cultural imagination. That as they ate the meal together, they were in essence saying, I was there and I was one who was delivered. I was there and I was enslaved. And then God set me free through the Passover lamb. And by eating this meal, many of the rabbis taught, they were basically saying, we are together in this, in the story of God's deliverance of our lives. And that's how they would have viewed this meal. They were not just remembering, they were saying, I'm a participant in what God has done. And so too with us when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just saying that we remember what Jesus did, that we remember his body was broken, we remember his blood was spilled. We are saying that he did it for us. He did it for me. It's a little bit like the old African-American spiritual song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? It imagines standing there and being there, present when Jesus was nailed to the cross, and that's a bit like what we do at the Lord's Supper. By eating the supper, we claim to be participants in the body and in the blood of Jesus Christ. His body was broken so that we might be made whole. His blood was shed, poured out so that we could be forgiven and given victory in him. And this is the point at which their practice of the Lord's Supper fell short. How could they claim through this meal to be participants in the body of Christ while shaming most of their brothers and sisters who were also a part of the body of Christ. How could they claim that Jesus' blood cleansed anyone who received him by faith and at the same time maintained such distinctions and such classes among themselves? Their meal proclaimed Christ's death. Their actions proclaimed something very different. And that's where Paul's instructions to examine themselves fit. He says in verses 27 to 29, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. They were to examine themselves before eating. And what would that examination reveal? that they were not discerning the body of Jesus. That is, they were not understanding how the entire church was the body of Christ and that by creating division in that body, they were dishonoring the Christ their meal claimed to honor. They were all equal participants in the new covenant, but in the very meal that proclaimed that new covenant, they had created a divide. Paul said that whoever ate the Lord's Supper like that ate and drank judgment on himself. How is that so? Well, for one thing, because that person is a part of the body of Christ. If one part hurts, the whole body hurts, Paul will say later. 
And by eating of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, he makes the claim that he is part of the body. If, if, you, if that individual ate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that is, ate it and yet did it in a way that caused division, he is at one and the same time claiming that he's part of the body and yet simultaneously harming the body he claims to be a part of. And this is what I mean when I say that you should examine yourself in light of the body. That is in light of the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Judging the body rightly for the Corinthians meant that they should not have been creating division within this meal. We don't take communion within a meal like they did any longer. At least that doesn't happen very often. And we're not going to make two distinct lines or two different options at the picnic depending on what class you're in or anything like that but we can still consider whether our lives take seriously that we are one body in Christ. Do you realize that if you are a believer in Jesus, you don't just attend church, you are a participant in, a member of the body of Christ. That implies responsibility, concern, unity, and love. Have you contributed to division in the body or to peace in the body? Are there people that you consider beneath you? Do you limit your interactions and keep one particular group close that is more like you, but another group at arm's length because you have a problem with them? Judging the body rightly means that we understand that we are not attenders, but members of the body. How can you increase your care for the body of Christ? How could you take your concern for the body of Christ up a level? How can you bolster it? Perhaps some need to start with repentance for gossip or for bitterness toward a brother or a sister. Others may need to repent of pride. Perhaps some of us need to obey the simple prompting of the Holy Spirit and not be too embarrassed or too shy to extend our love and help others. Maybe some have had the same comfortable group of friends for a long time. And you need to discern how God is increasing that circle of people to include others so that you show to them that they too are part of the body of Christ. Finally, you should examine yourself in light of the body because it's better to be disciplined than to be condemned. You can submit to the Lord's discipline. Look at verses 30 to 34. They tell us this. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Verse 30 is a bit mysterious. Paul seems to have stepped into a prophetic role and spiritually discerned a divine cause and effect between disease and sickness in the church in Corinth and their actions and abuse of the Lord's Supper. And this doesn't mean that any sickness in the church or in the body of Christ is God's judgment. Paul specifically discerned that this was the case. But what it does mean is that immediate judgment may follow not discerning the body of Christ, and certainly judgment will occur at some point. And that judgment will either come from us learning to rightly discern the body of Christ and examine ourselves, or that judgment will come 
from God. And when it comes from God while we're still alive on earth, that judgment is not condemnation. It is God's grace. He disciplines us so that we might repent and that we might change so that we will not be judged guilty or condemned in the end. And that discipline could come to us by way of God's word, could come by way of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It could come through the rebuke of a godly friend or an elder or a pastor. And we see from these verses that discipline can even come through things like sickness or the circumstances in our lives that God reveals he's He's disciplining us through those things, though we have to be careful and carefully and prophetically discern those moments. But the point is this. God desires that our our relationships with one another in the body of Christ would actually reflect his son Jesus, and he wants our growth. So his judgment shouldn't be taken lightly, but neither should it be taken as a sign that he is against us. What it does indicate is that he is for us and wants us to grow in his love. When you watch a sports movie and and the team isn't doing so well, and then they cut to the next practice, what are the coaches usually doing? Are they usually really happy? Are they handing out like desserts and uh, and a party, like hats and, and streamers? No, they're yelling, aren't they? They're shouting. And then they're giving more drills to run, aren't they? Because they want their team to grow to do better. I remember when I was playing basketball in high school my sophomore year, and uh, we had this one drill I really hated, and I think everybody hated it. And when we would do poorly in practice, especially on the defensive end, or we would do poorly on defense in the game, we would have to run these shuffles. I don't remember what they were called. Maybe some of you will know. Maybe they're called different pl- things, different places. But basically, we would have to do a squat where our thighs were parallel to the floor, hold our hands above our heads, and then we'd have to shuffle like this all the way around the perimeter of the basketball court. And then when the entire team got done, we'd have to turn around and do it the other way. And if somebody's thighs weren't quite parallel to the floor, they would be yelled at. And if they didn't fix it rather quickly, we'd all get to do it again. And we would just keep going until, we were, until the coach was satisfied that we had learned our lesson about how to be ready defensively and our legs were prepared for the next game. And so, was the coach for us or against us in that situation? He was for us. Didn't feel like it about halfway through, but he was for us. He wanted us to improve. So it is with God our Father. When there are moments in our lives where we need discipline, that's for our good. God's judgment, his rebuke, and his conviction are for our good as well so that we won't continue in sin and be judged or condemned in the end. The application for the Corinthian church was pretty straightforward. They were supposed to wait for one another, show hospitality to each other, stop the divisive actions while they were taking the Lord's Supper, not just going ahead and the rich eating their own meal and the poor having to eat their own different kind of meal, but demonstrating unity in this meal together. And I don't think we have the same symptoms of division that the Corinthian church did, but there may be other ways in which we need to submit to the Lord's discipline, especially regarding our relationship to the body of Christ. Perhaps this passage should admonish us to ask whether we treat church like a body or like a social club or an organization that we attend once in a while. The Bible does instruct us to be orderly, but we are more than an organization. We're supposed to be 
Uh, we're supposed to have fellowship together, but not merely around our interests and our preferences, but around our Savior. Perhaps one element of God's discipline regarding how we do not properly discern the body of Christ is lack of revival. When Greg and Robin Hubbard were here, I was struck that he shared one of the keys to revival is unity in the body of Christ. And he reminded us that God poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost when the believers were together and they were in one accord, unified in their desire and their purpose. Jesus told us at the end of the book of John that the Father would make us one and the world would know that we are his by how we love one another. Is it possible that we don't experience revival because we've become too disjointed in love for one another or our love for the things of God has become too broken up? Do we think of the church as, as uh, one of many organizations in which we participate or that we charitably support or do we understand that it is the body of Christ to which we have been joined? Let's submit to the discipline of God's word, to the discipline of his spirit, as he directs us and he prods us toward greater unity, especially greater unity in prayer and in mission, greater unity around hungering for the things of God, greater unity around our common desire for God to pour out his spirit in these last days. Let's be joined in a unity where we love God and and we love one another so that God might give to us revival that purifies and that ignites passion for him and that brings salvation in our communities and to our families and to our friends. And while divisions might not be obvious in how we practice the Lord's Supper, this passage still provides the same reminder to us that we are part of the body of Christ and should cause us to examine whether we have discerned the body correctly you should examine yourself in light of the body. And you can do that by tearing the religious coating off of your selfish motives, judging the body rightly according to what Jesus said when he gave us the Lord's Supper, and by submitting to the Lord's discipline. I'm gonna ask for the worship team to come as we get ready to respond. Today, we're not taking the Lord's Supper. That's something that we will do next week. Nevertheless, I wanna encourage you to examine yourselves to see if you've discerned the body correctly? Are you thinking about the church as a body of Christ? Is there cause for division or for bitterness concerning which you need to repent and you need to let that go? How can you strengthen your connection to the body of Christ? How has God called to you to reach out to someone else in the body in order to show them the kind of love that goes beyond the niceties of an organization and extends to the love of a family? How is God calling you to participate in the life of the body to which he's joined you? That you, when you come together and you sing a worship song or you take communion or you watch a baptism, or you see a baby dedication, and you say, I'm a part of this family through your words or, or through your actions, or you say, I'm a part of this body through what you're doing in those moments. How is he calling you to actually examine what's going on beneath the surface 
and to see if that's just a bunch of religious covering that is masking the holes of rust and water that have accumulated in your own heart, in your own soul, that are no longer responsive to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And he wants you to respond, not with, not with a thin veneer of paint, but he wants you to respond with real repentance and with a renewal of the Holy Spirit and with a remembrance of what Jesus actually did so that you can be a part, a member of the body Christ. This morning, we've talked about communion, and we've talked about the body and blood of Jesus, and one of the things that we often hear as Christians is this, that uh, believers are sometimes turned off by the church because people in the church don't seem to love each other well or do this correctly, and that's certainly uh, an indictment of the, of the church. It's certainly something that we ought to be concerned about, but I want to share with you something this morning for your perspective, as maybe someone who you don't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you're not connected to, affiliated with a church, maybe you've even criticized the church and said, hey, they don't do this very well. That criticism may very well be legitimate criticism, but I want you to consider this, first of all, that the church does not claim to perfectly represent Jesus, but to be people who have been saved by Jesus' grace who are in the process of learning to represent him well. That's not an excuse, but it is the reality. The second part of this is this. Whether we carry this out well or whether some other church you've looked at or some other Christian that you've seen, somebody who said, I'm a Christian, and you watched their attitudes, you watched their actions, and you were not convinced that there was any difference in their lives, whether they've done it well or not has no bearing whatsoever on whether it is true or not. It certainly can affect us, can it, when we see other people not living the truth? But whether it's true or not, that depends on whether it happened or not. And what the Bible tells us happened is this, that because you were separated from God, because you were cut off from him by your sin, because you decided to do things your own way, and that's what sin is. Sometimes people get really confused about sin. They think that sin is some action they commit, but rather sin is the attitude of saying, I'm going to do life the way I think is best and ignore how God created me and what he's done. That's sin. And when people think that way, it separates them from God. How could it not? If God has a way for you, he has created you to live a specific way, a certain way, and you say to him, I don't want to live that way, that's not what I desire, that's not for me, then what else is going to happen except a separation between his way, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, and your way? And the Bible says that the wages, or what you will get out of a life of sin, is death. Sometimes, as we saw in the passage today, that death begins to crop up in our lives, even right now. Not literal death in terms of my body dies, but in terms of brokenness in our relationships, a sense of purposelessness and meaninglessness, sometimes even people longing that they could just die and get the whole thing over with, and that wages of your sin begins to crop up in your life so that it's not what you thought it would be. Life, though you're seeking it your way and trying to do it your own way, is not what you thought that it would be, and you're beginning to bear the fruit of your own ways, and those ways are death. But even if it's going okay right now, it's going well, the wages ultimately of that sin 
is death, and that is this, that you will be eternally separated from God, from everything that is good, from all that he's created that is right and is holy and is pure and is true, from every kind of joy, from all of his grace. You'll be separated. That's what the Bible calls hell. You'll be judged because you refused to listen to God's way. But God was not satisfied to leave you in a state of death. He did not want to leave you caught up and enslaved to your own sin, to your own ways, and to your own desires. And so here's what God did. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. And what we've been talking about all morning is this meal that commemorates that death. The, the bread remembering the body of Christ that was broken. The cup uh, remembering the blood of Jesus that was spilled. Then God sent his son Jesus to die to bear the wages of your sin. He lived perfectly God's way and though he had done that, he still died. And he did that so that he could bear the consequence or the wages of your sin in himself. But he didn't just do it so that he could bear your wages of sin in himself. He did it so that you could join him. And that's what we've been talking about this morning too. That when as a church we take communion and we remember together the body and the blood of Jesus, we're not just saying, oh yeah, we remember Jesus did this. We are saying together, I participated in it. When Jesus died, I died. When Jesus was broken and his blood was poured out, I died. I died to my past. I died to my sin. I died to try to trying to do life my own way. I died to life without God. And I was in him when he died. And then what we say as a result of that is this, that if you have died with Christ, you will certainly be raised with him. Because not only did Jesus die, but on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he did it physically, and he showed himself to his apostles, and God did this so that you would know that he, first of all, can overcome death, and he did it as well so that you would know that he can defeat death in you. That if you will die with Christ, he will give you new life. And so today, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, the story, the message, the truth of salvation is this, that God loved you to the extent that he sent his son Jesus to die for you, though he had never done anything wrong and though he was not deserving of that. He took your pain, your punishment, your shame, that you might have new life in Jesus, if you will, by faith, join him. And faith is belief, it's trusting. It's saying, when Jesus died, he died for me, and I died in him to my old sinful self. But it's also believing that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised you up too, so that the Apostle Paul could write and say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or he could say, if any man or woman is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new has come. Jesus died to give you victory and new life in him, if you'll trust him. I'm gonna ask if you close your eyes for just a moment. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you wanna begin that today, 
Maybe you've criticized a Christian, you've criticized the church or whatever, but today you sense the Lord speaking to you specifically, the gospel, the good news, you can have new life in me. Maybe you know the death of your own life and you've not found uh, in anybody else's example that you've seen so far a good example of new life, but in hearing the message of the gospel today, something in you has begun to change and you want, you desire to respond. You find yourself contrary to what you thought you would do when you walked into this room this morning, instead of resisting, instead of wanting to put up a wall, you find yourself wanting to respond. That's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. He's calling you to salvation today. He's calling you to faith in Jesus. Do not ignore that right now. Listen to what he's saying and respond. He wants to make you new this morning. So if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin that by faith in him, what you got to do is believe in Jesus. You confess with your mouth, he's Lord. I'm not Lord, I'm not king. You're not Lord, you're not king. He's Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That is, your sin will be forgiven, you'll be given victory in Jesus, and you'll be given new life, the kind that God intended you to have, and it will be new life in Jesus. If you don't have that relationship with him today and you want to begin that, if you're here in person, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. may feel a little bold, but I'm going to ask you to do this. And this doesn't save you. I just want to be able to pray with you. And I want you to indicate your faith in this way. If you don't have that relationship, you want to begin that this morning. You want to respond by faith to the gospel of Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand like this this morning? Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. You don't know the forgiveness of your sins, the freedom from your past, the joy that that God is with you, that he has restored you, that he made you right with him, and you want to know that this morning. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? If you're joining us online and you'd like to respond, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. We'll respond to you and start the conversation that way. But is there anybody here you'd like to begin that relationship with God through Jesus? You want to lay down the old ways, the ways of your sinful life, and you want to be born again in Christ today. Is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait for just another minute because I don't want you to put up a wall of resistance because you're concerned about what anybody else thinks or about a hot dog in 10 minutes because hot dogs will always be there. But God has brought you to this moment to hear the gospel, and you don't know that you'll have another opportunity to respond. So if you don't have that relationship with Jesus and you know you need to respond this morning, would you do that? Is there anybody like that? I'm going to pray for the benefit of those who are online in case there have been responses there. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying. And if you've responded, would you just make this prayer your own prayer? These words don't save you. I don't have the formula. Jesus saves you when you put your faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for what you've done Thank you that you died for my sin and that you gave yourself up that I might be forgiven and cleansed and made whole in you. Thank you, Father, that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe today that you did, and today I confess that he is Lord, and I want to be made right with you. I pray that you would forgive me for my past. I ask, Lord, that you would wash away that sin. I pray that you would not only wash it away, that you'd set me free and give me victory and new life in Jesus today. I no longer want to live the way that I have been. I want to live for Jesus, and I want to live in him. Would you give me that new life and make me a new creation today in Jesus' name? Amen.
Amen. Believer, before we go, I want to ask you to respond. The, the command that is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is this, to examine yourself, to discern if you have treated or judged the body of Christ rightly. We've talked this morning about what that meant. For the next few minutes, we've got about five minutes left before we're, before we're scheduled to leave. So I want to ask if you just hold tight for a moment. And the worship team is going to sing, and as they do, I want you to practice what was preached today. Would you examine yourself? I don't mean that there should be a bunch of self-centered uh, navel-gazing as such, but that you would allow the Holy Spirit to just work in your heart and to speak to you about what ways he may be calling you to further engage with the body of Christ. If there is a point where repentance is needed, repent, be forgiven, confess that sin, and allow Christ to cover it. And if there is something that the Holy Spirit's been speaking about to you to be further engaged with the body, to further love the body, then commit to him this morning that with his help you're going to do that. But let's take these next few moments as the worship team sings. You can sit, you can stand if you'd like to respond that way, but let's examine our hearts as the scripture teaches and allow the Lord to shape us and to make us a more unified body so that we might represent him better and also that we might better experience his presence among us. Let's examine our hearts before the Lord this morning.